He was more than a teacher, more than an activist, more than a social prophet, more even than a remarkable healer. Sure, he was all of these things, but he was so much more besides. And I say all of this at the top of this morning's sermon because in order to fully appreciate what Paul is conveying to the Colossians in this remarkably comprehensive letter, we must first realize this, that for Paul, Jesus was so much more than just a remarkable and exemplary human being. He is the image of the invisible God, Paul writes. For him and in him all things were created. And moreover, in him all things hold together. He is the firstborn of all creation, Paul writes, and he is the firstborn of the resurrected dead. Yes, in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, Paul writes, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through the blood of his cross. So much more, in other words, than just an exemplary human being. It can be difficult all these years later, some 2,000 years later, to hear with true clarity what Paul is trying to say here. I mean, sure, we can understand clearly what his words denote. We can fully understand what they literally mean. But can we really appreciate all these years later? Which is to say, do we really have the capacity in the year 2023 to believe these outlandish claims that he's making, that is these cosmic, comprehensive claims. It's a live question. You see, I personally have no trouble believing that Jesus was a great teacher. I read the Gospels and that much is abundantly clear to me. And I have no trouble at all believing that Jesus was an effective social activist. There is no doubt when we read the scriptures and when we read contemporaneous writers, there is no doubt that his words and that his demonstrations brought greater awareness to social and economic injustices and that they can still today. There is no doubt about this. I have zero trouble believing that. I do have trouble, but not overwhelming trouble, believing that Jesus was a healer and a worker of miracles simply because I don't see those things every day. I don't know about you. Yet nonetheless, I am persuaded by much research that throughout human history and even still today, 
that there are people who have an inexplicable capacity to bring healing to others and to perform other remarkable, wondrous, inexplicable acts, that it's not just all moonshine. So while the miracle worker part of Jesus' identity may be a bit harder for me in 2023 to believe, I can faithfully believe that. Even all these years later, I can. But this other claim about the identity of Jesus, that is this deeper, more fundamental claim, that's an entirely different question, isn't it? They're with God at the moment of creation. The agent, in fact, overseeing and directing creation. The actual embodiment of God in human form. The one risen in human form and one day returning in like fashion, at which point in time he will reconcile all creation to himself, righting all wrongs and establishing a universal peace that can no longer be shaken or broken. That identity of Jesus? Can we really believe that? All these years later? Can we really believe that this man was, in fact, God incarnate? Can we really believe that this man rose from the dead in human form and will come again in the same fashion? And oh, I ask you, can we really believe that there will be a day when war and suffering and sickness and pain will be no more and when peace will fill this land as the waters cover the sea, can we? Two thousand years later, can we still believe that? Or is this man just a remarkable teacher from past history from whom we can learn things? Is he just an example that we can follow? Is he just a long dead prophet who can still excite? our social imagination. In short, all these years later, what is this promised hope pertaining to this Jesus that Paul implores the Colossians themselves not to lose heart in? And what is this promised hope that we might still be able to derive our own hope in today? What is this promised hope? Hope. Hope. Do we as human beings need hope or do we need hope? This week alone, this week alone, I spoke with members of our church family who were grieving recent deaths members who are terrified by sicknesses and maladies that they or their family members are struggling with, members who are concerned about their jobs, their families, their futures, our current political climate, 
members who are concerned about the afterlife and about what really awaits. All of these things this week, right here in our church family, I'm not even talking about outside the walls and on the news, right here within our church family, all of these things and so many others besides. And all of these things you see, these are about core existential matters fundamental human questions and the question underneath each one of them is this what kind of hope in response to such things is really on offer from a christian point of view that is what kind of hope is ultimately on offer in response to these things what can we really hope for faithfully Now, one could surely say in response that Jesus teaches that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike, and the one need not worry about tomorrow, for today has enough troubles of its own. That's solid wisdom. That's solid teaching. There's a little hope in that. Or one could surely say that Jesus was one himself to flip tables and to challenge political authorities in the name of justice and fairness, and thus that we, his followers, are well advised to take moral stands for the sake of such things too. In other words, following Jesus' example can indeed affect some social and political change in this world. So there's a little hope in that. Sure, there's some hope there. Or one could even say in response that Jesus did indeed heal others and that his example thus proves that people can indeed sometimes be healed and made whole. That can buoy spirits. That can provide a little sense of comfort. So there too is a little hope. No doubt. But is that enough? Is it enough? Is that really the kind of hope in which one can root one's very life? Is that really a substantive enough hope that one might be willing to give his or her life for? Is that enough of a promised hope in the face of such things? Personally, I don't think so. I don't think so, for we know fully well that simply saying that we need not worry takes away little to no worry whatsoever. Just as we know full well that whatever political or social changes might be wrought through our social activism, we know that these will inevitably bring with them a cascade of other problems and injustices that will then themselves need to be addressed because we're all broken human beings. We've seen that time and again through history. Just as we all know full well that even if we or our loved ones are somehow healed of all that ails us today, we will soon enough all be riddled with something else tomorrow, not least that we must all face the inescapable brute fact of death itself. And so the existential concern about which we are speaking remains entirely unaddressed by the teacher Jesus and by the activist Jesus 
and by the healer Jesus and by all of the other Jesuses whom we find more palatable to or believable given our late modern sensibilities. Only the risen Savior, Jesus. Only the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn of the dead. Only this Jesus, should he be more than just a figment of our imagination, can truly assuage the existential concerns that riddle the heart of our forlorn humanity. If in fact it's all true, which I believe that it is. Now, having said all of this, it's not just late modernity that makes this Jesus hard for us to believe in, you know. It's not only because it's 2,000 years later that we find it difficult to believe that something this good could indeed actually be true. It's not just that. It wasn't exactly easy at the time either. No, the man who wrote this letter to the Colossians, the letter that we've been looking at, exhorting these human beings to cling to this robust promised hope, this man himself struggled to believe, as we late modern people often do, that this Savior Jesus, that this cosmic, comprehensive, reconciling Jesus could in fact be real. Yes, he went about, quote, breathing his murderous threats against this Jesus. That's the way the book of Acts puts it. Because he, Paul, was aghast at the credulity of these simpletons who could believe such foolish superstitions. It seemed absurd and ridiculous to him too. But then one day, while breathing his murderous threats, Paul was suddenly seized by the sheer power of this Jesus himself. Because, and here's the thing, dear family, because if indeed this Jesus is something more than an idea, if indeed this Jesus is something more than just a figment of our imagination, then this Jesus, unlike the teacher Jesus, unlike the activist Jesus, unlike the healer Jesus, unlike any other Jesus, if in fact real, this Jesus, unlike all others, can suddenly compel and overpower a human being at any given moment. And that's precisely what happened to the Apostle Paul, and that I stand here to tell you is what happened and what still sometimes happens to all of us ourselves. It can and it does. I know. So make no mistake and do not misunderstand. I believe that Jesus was a remarkable teacher, the most remarkable of all time, in fact. Just as I deeply believe that Jesus' role as a social activist needs to be acknowledged and emulated in a way that popular Christianity tends not to acknowledge or emulate and rest assured that I believe that Jesus was indeed a truly exemplary human being whose way of life is well worth trying to daily emulate. But even so, far more than any of these laudable aspects of 
his identity. I believe that Jesus is the risen and ascended and returning Lord of heaven and earth. And consequently, I therefore believe that when it comes to human grief over death and the human anxieties about tomorrow and the human vulnerability in the face of bad news and the human frustration with political situations and the human fears about any number of sundry things. I believe that when it comes to these existential human concerns that because of the promised hope of what Jesus has done and is doing and what he will fully and finally one day do, I believe that because of this death while a horror now will one day be overturned. And I believe that our deepest fears, even those fears that in this life do become realized, that these will one day be eased and comforted. And I believe that our vulnerability to the vicissitudes of a broken world will one day be transformed such that we will become impervious to sin and evil. And I believe that all of the corruption and injustice and hypocrisy that mar the politics of this present age will give way to a fairness and a justice and a fullness that is only possible through and in the consummation of the coming kingdom of God. Now, is this day here? Hardly. Can we hasten that day's arrival? I'm afraid not. Do we have any inkling of when that day will be? Sure wish we did. And said, all we have is the gospel. The good news. The good news that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. The first first fruits of those who've died. And that his resurrection therefore points toward this general resurrection. And with it points forward toward this final restoration and the abiding peace that is to come. That good news. Does this good news bring back the dead to us now? Sadly, no. Does it give us a method for living life worry and anxiety free? Afraid not. Does it solve all of our social and political problems? I sure wish it did. But is it a hope robust enough to orient our very lives toward and to root our core deepest human existential concerns in is it I think so I truly do believe so and so too did the apostle Paul which is why he why he who had struggled so mightily himself to believe such a thing Which is why he ultimately encouraged the Colossians not to be shaken and not to, quote, shift from the hope promised by the good news that you heard. Not to shift from the hope of the good news. And that, dear family, is why I began this sermon the way that I did. 
and why I've so many times throughout this sermon sought to sketch a Jesus somehow slightly less than the Jesus of this promised hope. I've done so so as to say this, and it comes deeply from the heart. Dear family, let us not be tempted to shift our hope from the good news of this Jesus to something slightly easier for us as late modern people to believe, to say the moral example Jesus or the teacher Jesus or the social prophet Jesus or the miracle worker Jesus. No, as much as all of these are aspects of the Jesus whom we ought to root our lives and faith in, nonetheless, let us anchor our hope in the good news of the Jesus whom the earliest disciples proclaimed, which is in the image of the invisible God. The one through whom and for whom all things were created. The one in whom all things are still held together. The one who is the firstborn of the resurrected dead. The one who is even now reconciling all things to himself. So as to establish a lasting and final peace. And if news of this Jesus sounds too good to be true, it's not because it's a lie or a myth or a wish dream. It's because what this Jesus has done and is doing and will ultimately do is actually the deepest longing of the human heart. A longing that cannot be fully and finally satisfied in this present broken age, but a longing nonetheless which is there inside of us because it was placed there by the one who breathed this world into being, by the firstborn of all creation, by the one who was also the firstborn of the soon to be risen dead. This is the promised hope. This is the good news. This is the gospel. May we never shift away from it. May we instead, blinded by the light of its glory and its power and its hope, fall on our knees in humble appreciation for the one who makes it all possible. Christ Jesus, our Lord, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all of us who will one day Rise, to which all God's people said.